This is Daryl Wood, host of Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show on Faith Talk 1500. First, let me say this show is your show. That's why no matter what I discuss or which guests I interview, your input is value. If it's in the news, on TV, or at the movies, whether political, social, economic, or whatever, at some point I'm talking about it on Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show, Monday through Thursday from 4 to 6 p.m. on Faith Talk 1500. The Jewish Hour can now be heard on jcastnetwork.org, your portal to Jewish broadcasting. It's also on iTunes and on your smartphone using the Stitcher app. Shower. I'm your host, Herschel Finn, and we have a great show for you today. This year is the 500th anniversary of the Venice Ghetto, and we will be speaking with Detroit's own Professor Howard Lupovich of the Cohen Haddow Center for Judaic Studies at Wayne State about the history of the ghetto. This is really actually very exciting stuff. The portion of the week is the portion of Kedoshim. Lots and lots and lots of very good and interesting mitzvahs, and we'll talk about some of those. And that's in Leviticus chapter 18. We have one of the most unbelievable Hasidic stories, if we have time for it, at the end of the show. Wonderful a cappella music, as we introduced ourselves with this week. Before we do anything else, let's go right to the news. <laughs> Israel Defense Forces soldiers uncovered a Hamas-built terror tunnel that runs from southern Gaza into Israel. The tunnel is the second such tunnel running between Gaza and Israel discovered in the last month. The Israel Air Force targeted terrorists in Gaza after mortar shells were fired at those soldiers. IAF destroyed a terror base. April was the first month in a half a year when no victims of terror attacks were killed. With a total of 115 attacks this, that, this month, the figure for April continues a six-month downward trend in the number of incidents in Israel-controlled areas and is the lowest monthly total recorded since July with 103 attacks. Israel's custom agent seized four tons of ammonium chloride used in bomb-making, hidden among 40 tons of salt headed for Gaza. There has been an unusual amount of salt imported into Gaza, and Israelis suspect it is a way of hiding bomb-making material. Israel opened an official mission at NATO's Brussels headquarters. NATO's governing council stated that Israel's ambassador to Belgium would serve as the head to that mission. James Gonzalo Medina was arrested for intending to use a weapon of mass destruction at a synagogue in Aventura, Florida, near Miami. That means a bomb. The criminal complaint says Medina claimed to have converted to Islam four years ago and planned to say that ISIS was behind the attack. And finally, the JCC of Greater Ann Arbor was evacuated this week for an hour after an unknown caller said a bomb would go off in a locker in the building. 
The JCC also houses, houses the Jewish Federation and the Hebrew School of Ann Arbor, Jewish Hebrew School of Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor police brought bond-sniffing dogs, but no explosives were found. And that's the news. Some of the best jobs in the world are in the radio and television industry, and you too can join the workforce in as little as eight months when you complete your hands-on training at the Spex Howard School of Broadcast Arts located in Southfield, Michigan. At Spex Howard School, students get to play and learn at the same time. Imagine spending your class time behind the microphone, spinning music and hosting your own radio show, or designing and lighting a set for your own TV program, running a camera, learning to edit, directing a program. When you go to Specs, your day will be anything but dull. And if school is this fun, imagine how exciting it is to work in the growing industry. In addition, the credits you earn while attending Specs Howard School are currently accepted at 14 area colleges and universities. If you've always wanted the best job in the world, call for a tour of Specs Howard School at 248 358 9000. That's 248 358 9000. Or visit them on the web at specshoward.edu. Spex Howard School of Broadcast Arts. This is where you start. Herschel Finman, here you are listening to the Jewish Hour. We are on live with Professor Howard Lupovich, who is the director of the Cohn Haddo Center of Judaic Studies at Wayne State University, located here in Detroit, Michigan. We're talking about the Venice Ghetto today. How are you today, Howard? Good, thank you. How are you, Rabbi? Good, thank you so much. My wife, Hannah, went to Italy five years ago and has since fallen in love with everything Jewish-Italian. She's become like a real Italiophile. She even mentioned to me that the word Italy, maybe you can corroborate this, the name Italy, before it was called Rome, everybody knows the Roman Empire, but then we call it Italy. She says Italy means E, means in Hebrew for island, Tal, do, and then the ah is God's name. So it's like the Isle of God's do. Is there any truth in that, Howard? Oh, you do you really want to know? I mean, it's a great <laughs> story, but, uh, you know, it's probably not. I, I mean, it, it, it was a way for Jews living in Italy to make it feel more like home. In the same way that some of the first Jews who settled in Poland, they, they decided that the name Poland comes from Pauline. Let's live here. Uh-huh. So, uh, so, you know, uh, probably not. I mean, uh, there's, there, I, I've never, I've never seen anything corroborating, other than it's a nice story. I mean, uh, that, what does that, what does that say about Jews in America? Because America in Hebrew means an empty nation. Well, America, we, you know, so, we, just but, have, we, we just haven't created the story yet. You know, uh-huh. in the same, you know, same way that Sephardim came to be associated with Spain, and that the Jews who came to Spain decided that, you know, they, they had the story where they, they had come to Spain directly from Jerusalem, from that verse in the book of Ovadia, Galut Jerusalem, Masher Bisfarad, the exiles from Jerusalem who lived in Sfarad, who lived in Spain. And this was a way of showing their antiquity there and their deep connection. So I think Italia is a, is a way of doing something similar. Okay, later we got that out of the way. My wife, when her, her trip to Italy, and she really hopes to go back again sometime, she, she was most enamored with the city of Venice, and uh, spent time there, went to all those different places, and went some of the off-beaten tracks, too. Venice has the distinction, I believe, of having the world's first ghetto, and there's even a, a discussion as to what the word ghetto means. Is there not, Howard? Well, ghetto, uh, it comes from an Italian word, which means foundry, like an iron factory. 
and uh, it was called the ghetto because when the decision was made to segregate Jews into that outlying part of the city, the area that was chosen was a place where there had been, basically there was an, there was an abandoned iron foundry there, known as the Ghetto Nuevo, the new foundry. And uh, that became the area. So the ghetto really means a place where you process iron, but it came to be associated with the place where Jews live. And then when other ghettos were, 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 you know, were formed in other cities, the same term was kind of imported from Venice. Okay, so was it in in later times, and especially when you're talking in Poland and whatnot, when they had the the various ghettos, the Warsaw ghetto, the Kovno ghetto, the Lodge ghetto, all these ghettos, it was a way of cloistering Jews away and and keeping them out of the general population. What was the reason for establishing a ghetto, Howard, in 1516? Well, first, the first thing we have to be clear about, just by way of introduction, is that the the, the Italian ghettos were very different from the Nazi ghettos. I mean, uh, really, uh, they, they use the same term. They're similar in the fact that they're both for segregation, but, uh, for example, in the Nazi ghettos, Jews were, not, Jews were not allowed to leave, and no one was allowed to enter without special permission. The Italian ghettos, Jews were required to live there, but they were allowed to leave the ghetto during the day. Other people were allowed to come into the ghetto. So it was, it was segregation, but it wasn't a completely sealing the Jews off from everybody else. Uh, but yes, but the original reason for these ghettos, it was a kind of compromise, I suppose, or a, a, a strategy where uh, the, the Christian powers that be in Italy, in 16th century Italy, they were afraid that the, the presence of Jews would, uh, would, would contaminate or would corrupt the pure Catholicness of the city. So they wanted the Jews out, but they didn't want to lose the economic value of having Jews there. So... Uh, segregating Jews in a ghetto was a compromise, was sort of a, uh, a less economically dead. They wanted them there, but not there. Underst- understood. So what kind of contributions were the Jews of Venice making? Because at this time throughout Europe, Jews were very limited in the professions that they can engage in and what kind of Well, in, in, Ve- in, Venice, in Venice, Jews... But in Venice and the neighboring areas, Jews were—they uh, really—they really, they really uh, cornered the market on certain areas of trade, especially international trade. Jews had very well—they—they they, they had good international connections with Jews elsewhere. And, and Venice, being situated on the Adriatic, was well situated to trade with the Mediterranean, even to the Middle East, into Southeastern Europe, into so uh, it was a place that was suitable for international trade. And, and the Jews in Venice made an important contribution to that. Uh-huh. So they were valuable in that way. Okay. So if you're just joining us, our guest today is Howard Lupovich, who's a professor at Wayne State University, the director of the Cone Haddo Center there. <laughs> so you know, you know, you know, I would add also that in the in the sixteenth century, uh, there was a, the, the the rabbi of Venice was Simon Luzzato, who uh, he wrote a treatise defending the rights of Jews to be there in economic terms. Basically, he wrote a treatise on the economic productivity and economic value of the Jews. And it was really understood, not only by Jews, but by Christians in Venice, that the reason Jews are there and the reason Jews should be allowed to remain there in perpetuity and to prosper there is because everyone prospers there when the Jews prosper. Mm -hmm. Was there any correlation with the making of the ghetto in 1516? and the expulsion of Jews from Spain in 1492, which wasn't that... Uh, well, I mean, the connection was, 
I mean, the, 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 the two decisions were not related, other, other than, you know, at the turn of the 16th century, there, this was a time of rising Christian piety accompanied by rising Christian or Catholic intolerance. This is, this is a very intensely Christian period. Remember, 1516 is right around the time when, when uh, Catholicism is being challenged by, by Luther and the Church, but in general, it's just a time of, well, it's not a very tolerant time in Europe. And not just intolerance of Jews, but intolerance of anything different. This is a time when the Church is really trying to make Europe more homogeneous. And anyone, who, anyone who's deviating, well, is it, dealt with pretty harshly. So just to give you an analogy, this is a time in Europe where, where a lot of women are being burned as witches. Uh-huh. Where, you know, so that, that, that's, always, that's always a measure of intolerance. I would when, say. When there are a lot of witch trials. I would, I would say. The, if you could describe, maybe there, there seems to have been an attraction for Jews. Like you know that the Barbanel, who was the leader of the Jewish community in Spain, when he led the people out of Spain, he himself moved to Venice. What was, he, what was his attraction that he would, would pick himself up and move specifically wherever he could have gone anywhere in Europe that he put himself in Venice? Well, that, that's, that's the amazing thing about the ghetto, the remarkable thing. And this is sort of the, the paradox of the ghetto that a historian named David Ruderman pointed out, who teaches at Penn. He pointed out the fact that, yes, the Jews were segregated, and yes, in some ways, conditions in the, in the ghetto were difficult, but the creation of the ghetto created a permanent presence, we might call a permanent urban space for Jews in, in, in Venice. And the location of the ghetto, it wasn't situated far away from the rest of the city. It was actually situated quite favorably. So despite the fact that Jews were segregated, they could still do quite well in Venice economically, but also Venice became a center of culture and scholarship. So for someone like Arbarbanel, leaving Spain, Venice was a pretty attractive choice. Because, like I said, these were not the same as the Nazi ghettos. In fact, you know, on the, on the, in the scheme of things, the ghettos of Italy were probably closer to your standard Jewish quarter than they were to the much more hard, the much harsher Nazi ghettos. And that was the attractiveness of someone like a barber now. It simply it was difficult conditions. Now keep in mind also, for Jews leaving Spain, their options were pretty narrow. I mean, this, you know, Venice was one of the few places in Europe they could go, unless they wanted to go all the way to Poland. And, you know, in Poland in 1492 wasn't yet much of a place for Jews. It was becoming, but it wasn't quite there. And the only real, the only viable alternative for someone like Abarbanel, who really wanted to travel along the Mediterranean, was to go to the world of Islam, where most Jews who fled Spain actually went. But if you wanted to stay in Europe, uh, then Venice was one of the best places. It was mm-hmm. one of the better options. Yeah, it's your your uh, segue into my next question about the the movement, because there were a lot of Jews in Spain. And Venice is not even the city-state of Venice as it was before it was all unified under the, under one banner of Italy. wasn't very big, so there weren't. I can imagine. What would you say was the Jewish population back in fifteen sixteen? Well, the Jewish population of Venice. That's a good question. I don't think anybody really knows for sure, but it wasn't. You know, by European standards, I mean, by the standards of the day for Jewish communities, it was probably middle size. Uh, but keep in mind, there were no Jewish communities that were bigger than maybe 5,000 or 10,000 at the biggest. 
in the 16th century. Most communities were small. And it was probably 2,500 or 3,000 at the most. I mean, one of the reasons it's hard to know exactly is because there was a lot of coming and going from the ghetto. The ghetto was, the ghetto was a place where Jews from all over Europe, I mean, Ashkenazic Jews and Italian Jews, Spartac Jews, uh, they would come and stay there. There were a lot of, there were a lot of transient people. There were a lot of temporary residents. So the population was very fluid. But probably, you know, in the thousands, not the tens of thousands. Mm-hmm. Okay. Low Under, Understood. So let's move off from 1516. Okay, we well, so understand what the sentiment is in, in Italy and in Venice and Italy and Europe towards Jews. But a century later, we're starting to get into the age of enlightenment and people are, are uh, they're becoming, I guess, a little bit more tolerant and favorable, favorable to uh, diversification. Yet we see that there was a maintenance maintenance of status quo of the Venice ghetto. So how do those two things fit, Howard Lubavitch? Well, uh, the Enlightenment, you know, the Enlightenment was an intellectual movement and a cultural movement, but the political dimension of the Enlightenment came much later. So even though you had these intellectuals, a relatively small number of them, thinking new thoughts and these new ideas, the, the powers that be, even if they embraced some of these ideas, they weren't ready to turn them into policy. So maintaining the status quo of the ghetto was really a reflection or part of a much broader trend of the maintaining the status quo of just about everything. So even though, for example, the Enlightenment preached the equality of all men, universal equality, it didn't mean that nobles were giving up their titles and pretending they were equal to peasants. So you had these, you had these ideas of change which, which weren't yet translated into actual change. Uh, sort of like, you can be equal to me so long as you don't live in my neighborhood. Uh, well, but I mean, yeah, no, you, you're equal to me in theory. Like, you know, we're, you, maybe we all have the same capacity for thinking, but my status is different than your status. And you know that in the 18th century, there was a new, well, the, the Freemason movement, the Masons, what they tried to do is to create, as a secret society, was to create places where all people, all men actually, could come and be equal together. But it was a secret society which was often discouraged or outlawed by the state. So the state was really not ready to turn those new ideas into, into social reality. That would come a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what about, what about the religiosity, or maintenance of the religiosity of the Jewish community as we get into, say, the, the late 1700s with the Enlightenment movement of Germany, which spread eastward? What happened with, in, northern, in northern Italy? Well, here's the, here's the thing about Italians. Well, I should say it this way. There's something unique about Ashkenazic Jews. Ashkenazic Jews, on the whole, tended to be, through the ages, through the centuries, the most insular of all Jews, or the least, well, I should say, the least worldly of, 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 of Jews in the world. So, for example, if you walked into the home of an Ashkenazic Jew and looked at the books on the shelf, you'd find only Jewish books. You'd find the Talmud, you'd find the Tanakh. If you found philosophy, it would be the Rambam. If it was literature, it would be Yehuda Halevi, only Jewish books. If you walked into the home of a Jew who was not Ashkenazic, say Sephardic or Italian or Middle Eastern, you would find all those Jewish books, but you'd also find non-Jewish books. You'd walk into the home of an Italian Jew, you'd see the Talmud on the shelf, but you would also see Dante. And so Italian Jews, like other non-Ashkenazic Jews, they had, they had a much more seamless blend of, uh, of the Jewish and the non-Jewish part of their life and their learning. And so for Italian Jews, the idea of enlightenment was not that radical an idea. 
know, some historians, for example, Salo Baron, he made the claim that a century before the, the German and French Enlightenment, or, or, or before German Jews were embracing these new ideas of Enlightenment, Italian Jews were already doing it in fact. They didn't need the ideology to blend the religious and the secular. They already were doing it. So these, these were religiously observant Jews, but who at the same time, very comfortably, were living with one foot in the world of Judaism and one foot in mainstream Italian society. They simply they didn't need the Enlightenment. In the same way, they would never need Reform Judaism, and so they never had Orthodoxy as a backlash. They, they were, uh, they were uh, had a blended, compartmentalized way of being Jewish much, much earlier, really maybe from the time of the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So the Enlightenment for them was just very natural. I mean, basically they said, you know, great idea, we've been doing this all along. Where have you been? No. They were they were a century they were a century ahead of the of the European of the of the Haskalah, the Jewish mind. Gotcha. Okay. If you're just joining us again, our guest is, is Professor Howard Lupovich from the co- director of the Cohen Hadout Center of Judaic Studies at Wayne State. Rome, Roman there's a Roman great Roman synagogue and they have their own liturgy. They have their own rite. It's called the Roman rite. Is there what how are people praying in Venice? Was there some kind of something that's carryover also? They have this like Venetian well, Venice was probably used to, the, the Roman rite was really the Italian rite. Uh, it's a slightly different nusach, it's different tunes, and they have their own sidur, so that most of it is the same. But, but in the same way the differences between the Italian and the Ashkenazic are similar to the differences between the Sephardic and the Ashkenazic. So there are subtle, subtle differences, but those differences. But the fact of the matter is, if you're an Ashkenazic Jew and you walked into an Italian synagogue, you would still feel like you had fulfilled the obligation to pray. You could still follow the service. The Torah reading was the same. There was enough uniformity between, the, between all these different synagogues that you could... It, it, it didn't seem that odd. In fact, I believe in the 1660s, there was a rabbi whose name was Ephraim Cohen of Vilna. He was from Vilna, but he was the rabbi of Buddha. One of his responses, he was asked by an Ashkenazi Jew, am I allowed to pray in, in, a, in the synagogue in Venice? Do I fulfill my obligation to pray? And the answer was very simple. Of course you do. They have slightly different customs, but this is still a synagogue. And so this, so this Roman rite, it had subtle differences, but for the most part, if you walk, if you walk in Davind at that shul, you would probably, I don't know if you'd be able to lead the service because you wouldn't know the tunes, but the liturgy you would recognize 90%. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, you, at the onset, you, you made clear that there's a difference between the ghettos that the Nazis set up and the, the style of ghetto that was inherent in Venice. So when the Germans, the Nazis, started coming down from the, from the north to the south and taking over, over Italy, did they find it like convenient that the there was already a ghetto there? They can just uh, hurt oh, all the, oh, the, the the Italian ghettos were taken down by Napoleon's arms. Now, around the year eighteen hundred, when Napoleon conquered Italy, in fact, not only did not, Napoleon was a child of the French Revolution, he's an example of those Enlightenment ideas being put into practice. So, Napoleon not only did he not only did he he was a believer in equality. He's also a believer that Jews had the right to be citizens like everyone else. And not only did he, did he have the walls of the ghettos taken down, that was the first thing he had his soldiers do. They would come to these Italian cities, and the first thing they would do was take down the walls of the ghetto. So effectively, the Italian ghettos really ceased to exist at the time of Napoleon. When Napoleon was defeated, they were sort of semi-reinstated very briefly. But certainly when Italy became a state in 1860, 
it became a liberal state, and Jews were citizens of that state. So the area of the ghetto was still the area of the ghetto, but the laws of the ghetto were gone. And most Jews, in fact, continued to live in that part of the city, but not because they were segregated and forced to, but because that was the Jewish neighborhood. That, that was Dexter, and why, mm-hmm. yeah, nobody wanted to move out from there. Okay, so so at what point would you say then that the Venice ghetto became a tourist stop then, Howard Lipovich? When did the ghetto become a tourist place? That's very interesting. I mean, the bigger question is when did Venice become a tourist stop? Um, I mean, there are always there are always were Jews visiting. It's, sometimes it's hard to distinguish a tourist from a, someone who's going to visit, maybe a friend or passing through, and also there to do business. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, what we call you know touring, touring or tourism is a relatively modern thing, probably in the 19th century, certainly after the ghetto walls were taken down in the age of emancipation. The story of the ghettos became the symbol of Jews becoming citizens. And so you have some, you have European Jews going to see it, going to commemorate it. But I would say the way, the, 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 um, the way Jews are enamored with it now is probably even a 20th century thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, because, so a person going... A relatively... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish. No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So a person visit, Venice, visiting Venice now... What would they see that was still from the fifteen hundred from the fifteen hundreds, Howard? Well, well, you know, some of the buildings have been preserved or restored for you know for for commemoration for tourist purposes. You you know you you see the sign which says this is the entry to the ghetto or this is where the entry to the ghetto was. Uh, so it's like it's like a, you know, it's your typical preserved old part of a city. So you can still sort of you can still walk the steps of where the ghetto was and this and this is what the, this is where the synagogue was in the ghetto i think one of the synagogues in venice is still there and um you can you can walk through the space where the ghetto was it's it's been really, it's been very well preserved mm-hmm. my wife stayed in, my wife stayed in a bed and breakfast which had been an old age home and she said that actually there was a floor there that people still were residents from the old age home so I understand. I understand that you are leading a tour of Italy coming up this summer. Yes, I'm uh, taking a group. I'm doing it together with the JCC in uh, in July. We're going to go to Venice. We're actually going to Rome and then Florence and then Venice. Okay. Any details on that? If people want to get like uh, hop on board. Uh, I, I think. I mean, I, I you know you have to. The, it's Marilyn Wolf at the JCC. That she does the travel programs there. She's the one who's making the arrangements. I, I honestly. I think it's still possible to join, although it has to be pretty soon. So if you want to contact Marilyn Wolf at the JCC, she's the one. I think there's still some spaces. I mean, we have a we already have a group, mm-hmm. um, but we you know we wanted to do it as a one bus group. So I think there are still a few spaces left if anyone wants to join. Yeah, my wife is chomping at the bit. She's jumping up and down. I want to go back. I want to go back. I want to go back. So uh, it's going to be it's going to be a good trip. It's going to okay. be a good trip. Okay, our guest has been Howard Lupovich, who is the director of the. Cohen Haddo Center and Professor of History at Wayne State University. Howard, we want to thank you so much for coming on and enlightening us about the Venice Ghetto. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. Okay, take care. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Stop paying more than your fair share of property tax now. I'm Stephen Poulter, attorney at law and president of Express Property Tax Appeals. Right now, your commercial property tax assessments are in the mail. Like many commercial property owners, you're probably paying unnecessary and exorbitant property taxes, potentially costing you hundreds of thousands of dollars every year. Express Property Tax Appeals can help. 
I recently reduced one of my clients' property tax values by $2 million, realizing a quarter million dollars in real tax dollar savings. I can do the same for you. If you're a commercial property owner, manager, or broker and are tired of paying more than your fair share of property tax, call Express Property Tax Appeals now at 855-LOW-TAX-9 or online at lowtax9.com. That's 855-LOW-TAX-9 or online at lowtax9.com. You have nothing to lose except your looming property tax burden. I'm Stephen Poulter with Express Property Tax Appeals, and I look forward to saving you money on your property taxes. The Art Studio of Oak Park is now accepting students. Whether you're a real beginner or have been at it for a lifetime, the Art Studio of Oak Park is something for you. All levels welcome, all ages welcome. Private tutoring or small friendly classes. Flexible hours available. The Art Studio of Oak Park is very affordable. Make your life better. Put art into your life. The Art Studio of Oak Park offers lessons in a strictly kosher environment. Call today, 248-542-5087. That's 248-542-5087. It's great having an art room right in the neighborhood. Hey, Herschel Finman, here you are listening to the Jewish Hour. We have some PSAs. We got a lot, actually, a lot of stuff happening this week. Let's just, I have to pull up all these emails and scroll through them. Uh, remember their sacrifice. Yom Hazikaron, Israel's National Memorial Day, will be commemorated Tuesday at 6 p.m. at the Berman Center. That's at the JCC. Then, let's see, the third annual JVS Job Connection will be Wednesday, May 11th at the Southfield Pavilion. That's in uh, the Southfield uh, Civic Center there. And this is join us to learn about the realities of the job market and connect with employers who have job openings to fill. This is 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. is a job fair. Ask the experts, there's community resources and that's on Wednesday there. And then Thursday is Yom Ha'atzma'ut. Uh, nothing there. Um, okay, then we have just, yes. And then also coming up on, is the, coming up is the 18th annual Lenore Marwell Jewish Film Festival, which will run from May 8th through May, what's going on now then, uh, May 8th through May 19th, featuring 32 films with talkbacks, and you can go to the uh, marwellfilmfestival.com and to get all the information about all the things that are playing there. If your organization is having a function, well, let us know about it here. Send me a, something at rabbifinman.com, www.rabbifinman.com, and we'll announce it right here. We are playing a cappella music again for the next bunch of weeks until the middle of June, as a matter of fact. The reason being is Jews are in a state of quasi-mourning in commemoration of the death by plague of 24,000 students of the Academy of Rabbi Akiva going back some 2,000 years ago. So Jews refrain from cutting their hair, from listening to music, from getting married, from buying new clothes, from like doing decorating your house, that type of a thing. So, but... There's like everything. There's a way. If you you know if you're a, have a, or if you're a music junkie, well, 
We could do some acapella stuff, and acapella music has gotten very sophisticated since barbershop days. This up for your listening pleasure is 613 is the name of the group, and it's the song is entitled God Split the Ocean. of quality and excellence in kosher look for the michigan k on the label what's it look like the lower peninsula of michigan with a k it's the symbol of the michigan kosher supervisors go to their website mycosup.com that's mi for michigan ko for kosher and sup for supervisors mycosup.com and find this month's featured products you'll find michigan k products wherever fine food is sold especially at natural food patch on west nine mile road in ferndale Schulpenman here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. New a cappella group out coming out this year. The group is called Keep Alive, which is a portmanteau for two words, depending on how you sing it. You could either say, uh, uh, you could call it Keepa Live, which a Keepa means a head covering, a yarmulke. So it's Keep Alive. Keepa Live. Or you could say Keep Alive. So whatever, however you'd like to portmanteau it. The song they have is called Vihisha Amda, which is taken from the Haggadah. Let's listen in. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
someone you know have an addiction to opiates ready to take your life back but don't have the time for a long inpatient program mds drug detox is a team of physicians with extensive experience in the field of rapid drug detox under anesthesia mds is the nation's only rapid opiate detox under anesthesia facility with the same doctors rns and certified paramedics attending the entire drug detox process MDS Drug Detox is safe and effective. Their goal is to provide the best, the safest, and the most economical way to free you from your addiction. MDS uses the highest standards of care and the best FDA-approved medications. MDS Drug Detox understands what your concerns are. Make the call today, 888-637-6968, or go online to www.mdsdrugdetox.com. That's 888-637-6968, MDS Drug Detox. Herschel here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Up next, I think one of the best a cappella renditions of any song ever done. This is AKA Pella, or you could say also known as Pella or whatever, which is also one of these Portman do. So it's like a cappella or AKA also known as Pella, which would mean Pella is a wonder because they're, they're, I think they're one of the first groups that were doing this new style of a cappella. This is a, a 
a performance of Yesh Tikva, which is an old Benny Friedman song, which they did last year, I believe, in a cappella style. So we can listen to it to the Jewish Hour right now during this time. Let's get right to Yesh Tikva. There's always hope. get healthy. At Encompass Healthcare, you get the -the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? 
Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman, here you are listening to the Jewish Hour. This week is the portion of Kedoshim. I think there's a list of about maybe 40 commandments. There's no story involved. The theme is, as the portion's name suggests, based on the first verse of the portion at the beginning of chapter 18 of Leviticus, is that you have to be holy because God says, I'm holy. But you can first ask, well, what's the point of comparison? Okay, the Almighty is holy. Uh, therefore, what else do I have in common with the Almighty? One might ask. So, because God's holy, therefore, I should be holy. Well... If we go all the way back to Genesis 2, the statement there says, God said, let's make man in our image. So we are patterned after the Almighty. For those people who, uh, uh, during these 49 days between Passover and Shavuos, there is a tractate of the Talmud for those 49 days, which is 49 pages long, called Mesechta Sota. Uh, it's actually talks about the suspect adulterous woman, which is found in the portion of the week, which is read the week following Shavuos. In the page which corresponds to yesterday, it actually asks this question. That would be page 14. It says, wait a minute, we're supposed to emulate God? It says, God is a consuming fire. How could you possibly do that? And it says, well... The Torah starts with acts of goodness and kindness. Like, for example, Adam and Eve, first thing, what did they need? They needed clothes. God made them clothes. Abraham got sick. God went to visit him. Yitzchak lost his father. God went and uh, comforted the mourning, comforted the, the loss of a, comforted a mourner. Moses needed to be buried. God buried him. That's how the, the five books of Moses ends. So you see that the way to becoming holy in Judaism is not by cloistering oneself in a monastic hermetical lifestyle, but rather in dealing with other people. It's, it's much easier. If you, if you remove yourself from the world, it's very, very easy to act like a good person because you're not doing anything. That doesn't improve the world. What improves the world, specifically mentioned in this week's portion, is the commandment of kamocha. You must love your neighbor or your fellow, have you to translate the word reacha, your friend, as yourself. Now, it is assumed that when it comes to loving people, I love myself the most. And I would say that is true with most people, as it is the idea is if somebody else does something wrong, well, it's very easy to find a reason that that was a wrong thing. Whereas if we were to do the same thing, 
we would find all kinds of reasons to prove that it was not only not the wrong thing to do, but it was absolutely the best thing in the whole entire world that could have been done, and it deserved to be done, and you deserve to do it, even however wrong it may be, because of our self-love. So when we're dealing with another person, so the, the question was asked, which appears actually in the book Hayom Yom, which was written by the Lubavitcher Rebbe in 1942. It's a collection of sayings and aphorisms uh, pertaining to the days and the, the lined up with the week. And it's, it's, the question is raised that there are two commandments, to love God and to love people. The question was asked, well, which one's more important? And the Alter Rebbe, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, said, well, it says in the verse that I, God, love you, meaning people. So if that be the case, then, when you love people, you're loving what God loves, and loving people is more important than loving God. And indeed, you can have a person who's really in love and love and enamored and considers himself a really religious person. But my grandmother used to say, being religious in synagogue proves nothing because everybody in a, in a place of worship looks religious. It's how many fingers do you have to count after you shake the guy's hand on a business deal? It's there, those interpersonal relationships and dealing with other people, being the whole purpose, Hillel Hazakim, who was the leader of the Jewish people over 2,000 years ago, said, this is the Torah. A person came to him and said, I will convert to Judaism if you can tell me the whole Torah as I stand on one foot. And Hillel said, okay, pick up your foot. And he said, that which is hateful to you, don't do to anybody else. The rest is mere commentary. So he, the leader of the Jewish people, whose idea was to encourage people in believing in God and doing the various com commandments that had to do with belief in God, he recognized that the most important thing that a person could do is be a mensch, act the right way. We've got to act the right way and take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We got this story. It's unbelievable. Don't go away. Hi, this is Spex Howard from the Spex Howard School of Broadcast Arts. We're happy to sponsor the Jewish Hour and bring quality radio programming to the community. While much of the funding for the Jewish Hour comes from its sponsors, it's listeners like you that help keep the Jewish Hour on the air. Please send your tax-deductible donation to the Jewish Hour, 14,000 West Nine Mile Road, Oak Park, Michigan, 48. That's 14,000 West Nine Mile Road, Oak Park, Michigan, 48237. Your help is greatly appreciated. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Want to get in touch with me? Easiest way? RabbiFinman.com. www.RabbiFinman.com. What will you find on RabbiFinman.com? Well, you'll find right on the homepage. You'll find a contact me. You contact me. I'll contact you. And we'll be BFFs, best friends forever. You'll also find archived editions of the show. If you hadn't heard, you missed something today, missed something up to a month ago, that's fine. If it's if you wanted to hear the show older than a month ago, I suggest going to iTunes, Stitcher, or Jcast Network, where you will find every uh, podcast of the show going back to 2009, which is when we started 
uh, broadcasting on Salem Communications here at 1500 a.m. You'll also find archived editions of the E-Parsha, U-Parsha, and Hasidic U-Stories, which are insights into Judaism, which are presented, hopefully, in an entertaining and educational way. We made a challenge last week and said, if we could cover our budget with all of your pledges this week, then I wouldn't have to go into, like, go to the donations page. Guess what? We didn't even come close. <laughs> no, I have to talk about it. I'm sorry. On DriveByFinman.com, you will find the donations page. This is serious. We are nowhere near paying for May. I said March before. I'm sorry, May. April, we got paid. That's good. But we are a long way off from paying for May. We should be halfway through at this point. We're not. We're not. We're maybe a third through. So you have to step up to the plate. Go to RabbiFinman.com. Go to the donations page. Click on a number. It gets all processed through PayPal. If you have a PayPal account, it takes 30 seconds. If you don't, you have to use a credit card. It takes about three minutes. But at that point, you could set it up so a monthly donation. Even if you were to do $5 a month, it would come automatically. You wouldn't have to do it again. And you gave $60 to the Jewish Hour. And that is actually considered a considerable sum. Yes, we would gladly take $5 a month. So go do that. Don't like doing internet giving? I can understand credit cards and you know security and fraud prevention, all that stuff. Send your donation in any amount to The Jewish Hour, 14,000 West Nine Mile Road, Oak Park, Michigan, 48237. Another quick uh, community announcement that Wednesday, May 25th, at around uh, 7 p.m., Jewish Ferndale will be having its annual Lagba Oimer barbecue at its new facilities, 1725 Pinecrest in Ferndale, which is located uh, nine mile. Uh, there's parking on site, and then parking is across the street in the, in the community parking lots. For more information, go to jewishferndale.com. There is a charge. And as for Lag Bomer, we'll talk more about Lag Bomer as we get closer to Lag Bomer. The story, a woman whose name escapes me, but she was the granddaughter of Yaakov Emden, who was the leader of the Jewish community of Jerusalem two, almost 300 years ago, lived in Constantinople. And she went into the market on a Friday morning to go buy provisions for the Shabbos. Got a, it says, all kinds of fancy delicacies. And she found this really amazing fish. She had to hire a porter to carry the fish back home. That's how big this fish was. And she's, she's looking, taking care of the fish. She's saying, this is such a special fish. I wish we had some kind of special guest. Sometime before Shabbos, a carriage pulled up in front of their house. And carrying... Rabbi Yitzchak of Drohovich, who was the father of Rav Michal Zlachover, who was a very famous rabbi. And he spent Shabbos there. And he had a wonderful Shabbos. And came the end, towards the end of Shabbos, people kind of grab a little nap in the afternoon. And he was very perplexed. Why did I need to come to Constantinople to spend the Shabbos? And he went to sleep. And he, was, he had in his dream that he came and they told him that... This woman is very righteous, and she prayed for a special guest, and there's nobody special than you. So the next morning, he bid farewell to them, and he called the, he called the, the people together, and he asked the woman, she said, 
please be careful how you pray next time. He said, I'm from the Ukraine. I was on my way home for Shabbos when suddenly, somehow, I was whisked to Constantinople to fulfill, so the Almighty could fill your request for a guest to come. That's going to do it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope we had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope we had a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. We hope to see you again next week. Take care. Here's the update from The Ideal Depot. It's time for parents to make that all-important decision to pick a school for fall. 